this week on Dig Me Out. your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, this week, we're back with another one of our, I'd like to call them recurring episodes, recurring roundtables. It's uh, twice a year we get to go to a city somewhere here in the United States. Future In the future, we'll be expanding to cities around the world, but we haven't figured out the logistics around that. This week, in the um, travels around the country, we're visiting Minneapolis, St. Paul, for our Dig in Your Scene episode. And I know this is one we've had on the calendar for a while, Jay. Have you been excited about this one? I have. We need to get one of those Elon Musk rockets, and then we'll be able to visit all the cities <laughs> that we review. I, I agree. Yeah. I mean, we could get them. I could get them from Austin to Minnesota in like five minutes. Yeah, that would be those. awesome. Of course, the, the G's will, will kill you. So <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you're aware of that, Jay, but oh. I don't think you're going to survive a 3G flight at this point. So, the cost um, we pay for rock and roll. It's the cost. It's the cost <laughs> of rock and roll. And we do want to mention that uh, at the top of it that we are, this is October. It's our new headphone month. Thanks to Studio in Sweden. We're checking out their new Studio Regent headphones that we're really enjoying. And we'll have more on that later. So we do have a round table, which means we do have guests. We have guests joining us, new guests, old guests. And uh, we're going to start with our returning guest that has joined us before back in uh, 2016 she joined us to talk about her book it was called i live inside memoirs of a babe in toyland michelle leon welcome back to the show hi how's it going great welcome back to the show <laughs> and i want to remind everybody they can go to amazon to pick up the book also at the minnesota historical society press so briefly michelle can you tell us did you grow up in the Minneapolis St. Paul area or were you a um transplant to that area? No, pretty much. I was born in Scotch Plains, New Jersey, but we moved to um Hopkins, Minnetonka area when I was 4, 3. Okay. So, so pretty much the Hopkins is about it's like 15 minutes from Minneapolis, so just a really nearby suburb moved to the city when i was 17 got an apartment above the cc club that's that story excellent well part of, that's the beginning of that story that's the beginning of that story which <laughs> that's right, yes. you can read more about that in her book i live inside which you can also so find all a, about all of that yes there's a facebook page for it you just go onto facebook and use the search tool and you can find info on that book speaking of books released through the minnesota historical society press cindy collins is joining us author of complicated fun the birth of indie minneapolis punk and indie music 1974 to 84 welcome to the show thank you welcome thank you how are you great now you're also a um on kfai spin with sin mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yes been uh, doing that radio show for about seven years. And did you grow up in the area, or did you also uh, come from parts 
other than uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul? I grew up in South Dakota, and I moved to Minneapolis in 1989 after I graduated from art uh, school and, and English. Um, moved here to explore the arts and music scene more and be involved with that. Excellent. Okay. A different perspective then. That's cool. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. last but not least, joining us, I believe, from warmer climates than what we currently have it here in Ohio. Jay, you're probably doing okay, but it got a little chilly today here in Ohio. I'm not going to lie. Fall is settling in here in October. Uh, Mr. Jamie Wolford from such bands as The Stereo and Animal Chin, uh, which we, Stereo we reviewed many years ago, and we just learned that um, we made an egregious error while discussing that record. So <laughs> we will be su- submitting a correction to our uh, corrections department. Uh, who will post Thank that you. after this show. Yes. Welcome to the show, Jamie. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, it's great to be here. Uh, everyone, hello. And uh, Michelle, I'd like to add that I'm a huge Babes in Toyland fan. Oh, that's great. Thanks. <laughs> so, so, Jamie, you live in Arizona now. What's your history with Minneapolis-St. Paul? Well, um, I was actually, I'll, I won't go so far back as to make this strange, but I was i was actually born in England and I moved uh, with my family when I was three to, uh, to the twin cities. And so I grew up in the twin cities, uh, like St. Paul suburbs, like Woodbury and Lake Elmo and stuff like that. Um, I got into arts high school over there in golden Valley, uh, my 11th and 12th grade years. And, you know, for music and doing all that sort of stuff. And I was, I was playing in bands from probably age, uh, age 13 or 14. And directly after high school, I started touring, uh, with all sorts of bands, the Pacers, uh, Animal Chin, the Stereo. And then, um, yeah, it's just, you know, I, I didn't actually leave Minneapolis until uh, for Arizona until I think I was age 27. But I, all of my formative years in music were rooted in the Minneapolis uh, rock scene. Okay. And those bands that you were playing in when you were 13, 14, like what years are we talking? Well, let's say my probably... Let's see. My first tour, I think it was 1991 and I was 17. Okay. Um, Yeah. So very early 90s is when I sort of started getting my 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 toes wet and, you know, touring and playing, you know, kind of more serious shows, you know, non non house parties, you know. Gotcha. You break out from doing like your friend's garage show to actually getting first Ave or 7th Street Entry or the new band night at 7th Street Entry. That was like a big deal. That was kind of your way into that place, at least for our bands, was playing new band night. Um, and then if you were lucky, you know, you met someone that had a show or they would give you a show and you could play like the all ages uh, Sunday night in the entry or something like that, you know, and then just work your way up from there. OK, well, that's a good point for us to jump into. Um, we, you know, we're talking about the 90s on this podcast and. For Jay and I, working in college radio in the 90s, we obviously saw a lot of bands come out of Minneapolis and the St. Paul area, whether it was Soul Asylum or Semisonic or Low or the Jayhawks. And, you know, you would kind of see bands repeatedly coming from the same area and be like wondering, you know, what's going on there? We were in northeast or northwest Ohio, so we weren't making any trips out there to investigate the scene when we were 19 or 20 but we were getting these records and those were just a few of them. We didn't really have a good idea of what the history was other than, you know, we knew who's could do. We knew the replacements and we knew Prince. So I, I think 
what I'd like to start out with is talking a little bit about the the history of the 70s and 80s to kind of guide us into what how, what how this happened in the 90s. Cindy, your book is sort of perfect for doing so as it covers the uh, the 74 to 84 sort of birth of punk and indie music. Can you I'm not going to ask mm-hmm. you to distill the book down into like a minute here, but can you just sort of give us an idea of in in reading some of it, there was references to, you know, bands from like the Dead Boys and stuff coming into mm-hmm. uh, Minneapolis and playing shows and sort of lighting a fire in a way. Can you yeah. talk about some of the early bands that were making an impact, whether they were selling records or just kind of causing a scene sort of in the Minneapolis St. Paul area that were punk and indie bands? Mm-hmm. Let's see. The uh, the Ramones were brought to Minneapolis to play Kelly's Pub with the Suicide Commandos in uh, 77, and that kind of shook everybody's world. And they wanted to play more like that, faster and harder. But before that, New York Dolls performed the Minnesota State Fair in 1974 and really um, blew people away that uh, a band could just be funny and play not that great, but really be charismatic and entertaining. And so bands such as the Suicide Commandos and other musicians were there at the time thought they wanted to do that too. They didn't they had to be technically skilled, but they could do what they wanted and um they didn't have to play mainstream music or cover band music, which was the uh uh main music of the day in Minneapolis. Then Suicide Commandos went to C B G B because they were hearing about great music there in I believe it was seventy eight and they uh uh saw Talking Heads, Ramones, Blondie, mm-hmm. uh, bands like that. And that just solidified their idea that they wanted to come back to Minneapolis and uh, create a similar scene with their friends uh, who were in bands as well. Oh, Disc Records were a huge influence, uh, such as uh, Roxy Music, David Bowie, uh, again, Talking Heads, and just uh, music coming uh, in from all around the world. A few further influences on these bands and what they wanted to do. Okay, so Michelle, I want to ask you: When you first started going out to see bands, what local bands or or what Minnesota bands that were making some noise <laughs> were you seeing? And yeah, and, no problem. <laughs> and where were you seeing them at? Like the first shows you go to when you were like not old enough was like um Kaufman Union at the University of Minnesota they had the hall then what was the hall yeah yeah so you would go there and you like you could be you know like 14 or whatever and um so that was i would say i saw more touring bands that way like violent sounds and all those all the touring bands like that. Locally, you could sneak into, um, what was it called? 
No, it wasn't O'Gara's, but it was their McCready's. There's this place called McCready's that used to be in downtown Minneapolis, and they never carted. And you go see like the Urban Gorillas and um, early, early Jayhawks and Blue Hippos, Run Westy Run, all those bands that were, you know, just starting out around, I don't know, like 85, 86. And then, um, you know, they'd have the all age shows at First Avenue. So you would start going there and what else that was those are kind of the big ones i would say urban gorillas trip shakespeare blue hippos run west you run okay now jamie you said that you started playing you know in bands when you were like 13 or so um i assume you were going out and also seeing bands at, at all ages shows um sure what who were you seeing that were that were local to the scene and then and where were you seeing them at uh i mean my first sort of like real like punk show at a club was it was the entry the seventh street entry and it was fire hose with uh, it was a touring band i think but then the, uh it was charlie don't surf that opened which is randy the sound guy from the entries band i believe i think i'm right about that i can't i don't maybe maybe others on the panel can can correct my memory if i'm wrong uh but that was like the coolest thing. I think I was 14, maybe 15 at the time. Um, and it was the coolest thing to see a band that close. But previous to that, I had seen probably two other shows. Uh, my first show being like New Order and Public Image Limited and Sugar Cubes. But it was at like the Civic Center. And so, you know, and I was in like the nosebleed seats. You know, seeing a show at the entry was completely eye-opening because you're literally like, 18 feet away from the band, you know, and the sound system is like, you know, two feet over the top of your head. It was loud. It was clear. And it was, I mean, it was dark, but, but it was just mm -hmm. so <laughs> immediate and you could just, you know, and as like a 15 year old kid or whatever I was at the time seeing a show at the entry, it was scary to me. So it was very cool. You know, I remember my, my friend that I was with, um, he was like, he kind of like turned to me. He's like, all right, I'm going to go get in the mosh pit. I'm like, okay, man, I'll, I'll wait here. <laughs> you know? And then he, he I remember he, he like jumped in and there's, uh, and, and again, you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong on this. Um, and the, I think they changed it at, over time, but there used to be this speaker on the left side of the entry as you're watching the band that was a little bit lower than the rest. And you very easily could knock your head on it if the if the pit was a little bit crazy. And that was like literally the first thing that happened. My friend jumped in the mush pit and like got pushed into it and just bopped his head on this speaker. And I, I was just like, okay, whoops, well, I guess we're going home. But uh, he was fine. But it was just like it was the it was like one of the coolest nights of, of being a teenager at that point. Cause we just were in the we were at the place where our, our the bands that we thought were cool actually played. You know, because we didn't like any of the stuff that was, um, uh, you know, at like Music Land or whatever music stores they had at the malls back then. You know, we we would we would get all our music from like the SST catalogs, you know, Black Flag and Firehose and Minutemen and all that stuff. And um, but yeah, I remember seeing Firehose at the entry, um, Soul Asylum in the main room many times. Um, I remember seeing like Sugar's first concert there. It was like the loudest thing I'd ever seen. Um, you know, I mean, I saw Fugazi many times there. Yeah. 
all of those all of those bands. I'm probably bleeding together a lot of my teenage years and my twenties as far as shows go. <laughs> I can't totally piece it together, but I can. But I, I'll never forget that first that first entry show. It was just the coolest night ever, you know. And like it, it became sort of like a pseudo uh, home in, in a sense because when we started playing there, it took on a new sort of. Um, uh, it, it became endearing from a different perspective. You know, it was like your home to play and uh, as opposed to just your the place you go to always see your shows, you know? Okay. Oh, I remember going, going like taking the 17C bus from Hopkins. You catch it at the Hopkins yeah. Target. And you go downtown and you go to Northern Lights Music. There is a record yep. store that was just down the street. And then you would see everyone like starting to line up. Yeah. On the entry, and it'd just be like so exciting, and just buy clove cigarettes at Northern Lights, and then like smoke them in the line to go to the entry. You I know, was far just, less, as a teenager, I, it just seems so cool. Yeah, I was far less cool because at fourteen or whatever, my parents would drop us off at Northern Lights so that we could walk by ourselves <laughs> down to get in line and not get dropped <laughs> off in front of First <laughs> Avenue by your parents. Yeah. <laughs> No, we walked here, man. We're awesome, you know. <laughs> Are there any other clubs or venues that maybe didn't last long, but that were formative in the Indian punk scene? Cindy, I'm thinking uh, probably from your book, you've probably got a few that you could probably mention that maybe were short-lived mm-hmm. but important. Yeah, um, Duffy's and Goofy's Upper Deck were two uh, very crucial clubs that lasted only a few years in the early 80s, and they were inspired to host live bands from the success of the Longhorn Bar, which existed from 78 to 81, um, which really kicked off the uh, live original music and venues. So both Duffy's and Goofy's Upper Deck hosted uh, tons of local bands and uh Local punk and rock bands were growing exponentially inspired by seeing their friends play. Um, so, yeah, those venues were supportive of that and um, taking advantage of the growth of the bands. There were also um, underground spaces uh, later on, like Speedbelt Gallery, which hosted tons mm-hmm. of oh, underground yeah. bands, um, such as the first show of Green Day and uh, um, just hundreds of bands. Uh the church, uh, some other, Michelle, you probably know more of the underground spaces, of course, than I, but, um, oh, maybe later on. No, remember where there was, <laughs> what was the remember Fernand- Fernando's? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Do you remember Fernando's? <laughs> yes. <laughs> hey, there was, was a the, weird um... bar, like, way up on Lake Street called Fernando's, and it was, like, yeah. pretty much the were oh, known as the wor- like worst place to play. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, Cindy, Cindy, you you mentioned uh, uh, the Speedboat Gallery. Was that in St. Paul, like like off Grand mm-hmm. or Snelling or something like that? Uh, a later incarnation of it was on Grand and, or on Snelling Avenue. The first or second one was off of um, drawing a blank. I want to say. Michelle, do you remember the location of the uh, motor oil coffee? I, with, oh, yeah. No, I just remember. didn't remember Snelling Selby. University. Yeah, yeah. Selby and something. So. But it was like, yeah. it was down downstairs, wasn't it? Like down a flight of stairs? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, there was a, it was like used books upstairs. 
Yeah. Right? God, I, I literally mm-hmm. don't think I've thought about that for 20 years. That's amazing. <laughs> well, that's why we're here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then there's tons of like, it would just be like somebody's warehouse space and you just play mm-hmm. like out on some loading dock or in some warehouse. You know, there was just always tons of parties like that. Or just someone's basement. They're just like, we're just having a show at our house in the basement. (laughs) Countless basement shows. It was very fun. (laughs) Well, that's a good opportunity to move into our next topic, which is how did the bands get the word out about those shows, especially when they're playing a basement or an underground space? I imagine that, that, you know, one of the things that I think has been lost in the last couple decades, which you know, we can we can cry about is um, there were so many zines and there were radio stations and weekly papers. Um, those were just a couple of the ways that bands would get information out. What were what were some of the unique um, like media outlets that bands could utilize um, in the Minneapolis St. Paul scene that existed back in the 80s and then into the 90s? So, like, Jamie, I'll start with you. What did what were you using to get the word out for your early bands? Oh my God, I have no idea. <laughs> just, just, I mean, I, I don't remember doing anything like with zines or any sort of press. I don't remember anybody. T- uh, there was the Pulse magazine, which was like it was sort of a proper mm-hmm. paper, though it wasn't a zine. I just can't remember. I mean, I, I re- uh, we would just flyer and we would just try to we would go to other people's shows and flyer, and then try to play with bands that had maybe like a notch or two above us. We'd try to open for them and, you know, sort of like get in front of their audiences. I mean, we, I, I kind of feel like in a sense, we tried to just be not less, not intentionally, but organic as possible. Um, not, and again, not by any sort of design, but just because we didn't really know what else to do. None of, at, at, at the, in the very early days, there was no clue of how to do this. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if anything, there was more to, I guess from my perspective, it was almost easier for us to book a tour than it would be to figure out how to cultivate a local following. Um, because I had no idea what that would be like, but touring seemed easier. I mean, you, you have to get a van and then you go. And back in the, back in those days, it was like, if you were a touring band, you sort of had this like, uh, sort of like a, a weird punk rock diplomatic immunity when you came to town, like the, the, the local bands would take care of you. The, you know, the audiences would come out and say, Oh, they're from out of town. And they would stay to watch you like on purpose, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and, and if, and if there was money at the end of the night, it would definitely go into your gas tank or your bellies. And that was a good thing, but, um, it's definitely not like that nowadays, but like it was sort of, um, it, it to me, it was almost easier to, to build a local following by leaving town and, and making a name for yourself as the band that got out a little bit, you know, like it built credibility. I guess so. I mean, I, you know, I know that didn't answer your question at all. No, like- <laughs> Sorry. Uh, but, but I don't, I don't have an answer. Cause I, I, I don't remember what we did. If anybody did talk to us, it was, it was probably their idea to do so. I don't think we had any sort of uh, uh, ambitions or even wherewithal to come up with that. So. Well, let me go. Let me go to the other side then, um, Cindy. You mentioned that you moved to the area in '89. Mm-hmm. Where were you going to find out, like, where the bands were playing? Was there a paper that listed where shows were each week, or were you listening? To, was there a college radio station 
that you were tuning into that was covering any uh, local music? Let's see. I uh, was listening to college radio, whatever Radio K was called at that time. Um, I was reading like art paper, Twin Cities Reader or whatever it was called in the 90s, uh, Star Tribune. But a lot of word of mouth and flyers and going to record stores and getting to know the um, uh, clerks and hearing what they recommended. Uh, a really large part of it was just going to my favorite clubs on a near nightly basis, 7th Street Entry, 1st Avenue, the Uptown Bar, and just discovering uh, new bands without having any idea who they were, figuring out who I liked and um, trying to stay in touch uh, of when they were playing next by those uh, various means flyers and uh, and the local papers and radio. So, Was there any commercial radio playing local bands? At that uh, time? Yeah, KFCI has been for 40 years, and Radio okay. K. Uh, Rev 105 came along in the 90s, I believe, mm-hmm. and that was one of the very best stations and resources. Yeah, so. that, I loved that radio station. I mean, you could like, it, it was like Spotify would be today. You know what I mean? They played pretty much mm-hmm. everything that you wanted to hear if you were into that sort of music at all. Um, I mean, it was, I heard you hear bands that you would never get a chance to hear today. You know, I remember finding out about like that band, the Dam Builders, and I loved that band ever since. And like, I, I would have never discovered that band any other way back then because there wasn't the internet, there wasn't all this great stuff now. Um, but, uh, what was it? Mary Lucia was the, the mm-hmm. kind of the key person there mm-hmm. and the, the hosts were great. They were Kevin knowledgeable. Cole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, all those people were very, very knowledgeable about what they were spinning, and it was like you could listen to radio uh, uh, to uh, uh, Rev 105 all day long. Uh, uh, they had two bands, right? It was 105.1 and 105.3, right? I think so. Did, yeah. Didn't they have some weird thing where they literally had two two spots on the dial? I can't remember, hmm. but hmm. <laughs> I seem to remember, but not remember. But so, Michelle, I'll, I'll follow up with you then. When you were starting out with Babes in Toyland, was there any places that the band would go to for for media in terms of um, were there any local weekly papers that weren't mentioned or any zines or any other outlets that the band would use to promote itself? Well, there used to be two weekly papers. There was City Pages. We still have City Pages and The Reader. So you would go and pick up both of those and then... I would go like straight to the back and there would be like the uptown bar schedule and you'd like with a pen, like mm-hmm. circle all the shows you wanted to see and the first half schedule. And, um, you know, it was just grassroots. Like you go and you'd make a flyer and you'd cut out like a picture of a baby doll and a picture of a monster and draw some stars on it with a Sharpie, you know, <laughs> and, then, and then go to Kinko's and make a bunch of them. And like splurge on the really good staple gun, mm-hmm. <laughs> and you just put up flyers, and you would just tell people, and yeah, that's how you found out about stuff, and that's how you told people you're having a show. And I just think it, we just played all the time. Like we never said no to anything. We're like Fernando's, sure, <laughs> like we'll be there. Right. Um, you know, just we we would. Play like three times a month. We just played all the time, and so that I think you know helped helped a lot. I feel like we need the story of Fernando's now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was going on there? Why was it so terrible? 
like it's just a weird neighborhood where not where you would usually hang out. I mean, not, it's not that weird. It's pretty normal, but there was like that Avalon theater was down there. So it would have like the X rated movie theater and then just some weird bar that you'd play in the basement. <laughs> it was just, was kind of short lived and mm. um, just kind of known for not paying very well and nobody would go. So sketchy, so sketchy would be the so word. Those two things together. <laughs> okay. Perfect. I don't know if it was like sketchy, like scary, but it was just kind of um, a bummer, a bummer place. <laughs> right? It's, do you they, guys they remember have a, that place? I don't remember it, but I but I kind of kind of hung up on Fernando's. Yeah, yeah. You see, there's some gift. there's some there's some uh, unfinished business with Fernando's. <laughs> <laughs> No, but they have a they, trust me. They have a Fernando's in every city, you know. Oh yeah, <laughs> it might not. It might be called something, but it's out there. Absolutely, Fernando's, <laughs> Bernardo's. Cindy, you mentioned a, a a way to find local bands or or shows or or what's going on is is the local record store, and you know that's something that. Um, I, I'm, unfortunately, a lot of people today are not don't have that same opportunity because of the, mm-hmm. uh, you know, l- the decline in the sale of physical media. But I'm curious about uh, when you mentioned that, what stores were you going to? Where were the ones that you had the really knowledgeable uh, people working there that would be able to direct you to the to where to see the cool shows or the cool bands? Arthur Jokopis, which later became Treehouse Records. Let It Be was big, Northern Lights, uh, Platters, above Platters. Mainly those, yeah. Okay. What about you, so. Jamie? Where were, uh, where were you going to find records? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the cheaper records was always near my house. They had a few of them. Um, there was the big, big yellow one kind of near Hennepin and, and Lake, which um, that was like my home away from home. Um, but yeah, Orfolk, Jokopus, Electric Fetus. Over there by the the freeway, I think that's Electric Fetus, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, Northern Lights and I'm trying to think, I think those are the main ones. There was multiple locations of cheapo, so yeah, I think I'm thinking of of two cheapos. There's there was actually one on Snelling too, over but kind of near McAllister, and I would go there often too because the bass player in Animal Chin went to McAllister College. Uh, so I would like drop him off and then go to cheapo for an hour and just thumb through records, you know, looking for something cool, you know, are any of these places still around or have they mostly gone away? I mean, I, I don't, I have, I've, I'm not around, so I don't know. <laughs> I I've been gone from Minneapolis for like 15 years okay. plus now. So electric fetus and uh treehouse records are still going strong. Um, there's of course new record stores, which are, doing really great as well. Hi-Fi, Heron Records, and Bradley Brothers, Agarta, things like that. Okay. Michelle, I want to ask you, was there, when you were coming up with um, Babes at Toyland, were there particular record stores that you found to be more supportive of either like stocking uh, the band's releases or of, you know, giving them uh, more prominent I don't want to say position or whatever, but just like you found that they were more um, open to um, playing the music in the store or anything along those lines. Um, well, we used to do a lot of in stores like down in the valley. Um, and yeah. 
there's that place way down on Nicollet. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that one? Sin? was I think it's still there. Is it there. Roadrunner? It's not Roadrunner. It's like it's like in Richfield. Like we, I don't think it's there anymore. Um, it was down in the valley, though, wasn't it? Was it in one of the down in the valleys? Yeah, that well, there definitely then, was. There definitely was a down in the valley in Richfield. But I, I, yeah, I, I, I think, think there was. Think, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> oh no, no. Yeah, I think that's what it. Yeah. So down in the valley, let it be was a great record store in downtown Minneapolis. Um, and then, of course, Treehouse, which was Orfolk, um, Mark Trios bought Orfolk, and we and Treehouse had a record label, and they put out our first single, was on Treehouse Records. Jay, all this month we're talking about our studio headphones, and I want to make mention that it is Pink October, which means that 10% of all the profits from Pink products over at studiosweden.com will be donated to the Breast Cancer Foundation. So, for example, if you wanted to pick up a pair of the Trey wireless in-ear models with the wingtip, uh, you could pick up the Pink model for $99 and 10% of that is going to go to the Breast Cancer Foundation and I also want to remind people that you can use the dig me out code dig me out 15 that's all one together you can find it in our show notes and you can get 15% off your purchase when you make that purchase so that's a pretty good deal Jay on that percentage off and it's a good deal for breast for the Breast Cancer Foundation for Pink October yeah, and even if you're not needing headphones right now, these makeup would be a really cool gift. Like these are pretty sharp looking yeah. uh, in ears, especially the pink and the gold and the white and the gold look pretty nice. Nice little carrying case it comes with and mm-hmm. it's got I don't know if you've ever used the in ears, but it's really important to get a good fit and these come with 1 2 3 4 different sizes of tips so you can make sure that they fit your ear really good and you get a good nice seal. Yeah. That is definitely important for inner ear. If you don't do that, if you don't take the time to figure out the right size, you won't get good bass. It'll just sound kind of tinny and right. not great. So it's nice that they come with the different tip sizes in the carrying case. And yeah, they look really nice. I haven't tried the in-ears yet. We've only have the on-ear regions. And they also, like I noticed when we got ours, there's instructions on there. You can take the caps off. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of a classic looking on your headphone design, which is nice. I mean, they're just well done, but it's the the back cap of it. You can take them off and apparently buy different like designs and they have a pink cap Silva Rosa that you can get that I think qualifies for the 10% back. So pretty cool. You can customize them and make them, make them look a little different. Cool. Did you see the, um, how they got their name? No, I didn't. What's the story? <laughs> so what, when you heard the name, what did you think of? Well, I thought of Phil Collins. Okay, well, that's where they got the name. 
<laughs> okay. It was one of those obvious things where you're like, could that be related? No, that couldn't be related. And if you go on the website and read, the name CDO stems from an incident where one of the founders spotted musician Phil Collins in New York, in New York having problem with his headphones. With the frustration of not yet uh, being able to offer any alternative to Phil, the only words they could utter were, trust me, I know the feeling, as they shared eye contact. The name Studio is an homage to Phil Collins' song, Susudio. And the <laughs> determination of succeeding with a venture, rendering from the bittersweet anecdote. So Excellent. there you go. It, it really is tied to the song, Susudio. That's one case where it actually makes sense. So, right. <laughs> great. And that's one of the songs you're like, what What does that mean? Yeah, exactly. What is he talking about? Yeah, what is the studio? I, I just, don't know. I don't know. Uh, is it a pe- person's name? Yeah, you can read about that over at studiosweden.com. You can also check them out at Studio Sweden on Facebook and Instagram. That's where you can use your 15% off code, Dig Me Out. 15 to make a purchase. Let's get back to the show, Jay. Yeah, so that was obviously like very supportive, and um, and what was the one that Terry Katzman owned? Oh, that was um, Garage Door. Garage Door, yeah. Yes. Yeah, that was another great record store too. And Terry Mm -hmm. is a great person, a long time on the scene. I'm sure he's in your book a lot, Sam. Yeah, Um, he is in it a lot. And he's still involved with record stores with Hi-Fi Hearing Records, too. So, Well, Michelle, thank you for uh, uh, opening the door on the um, the record label uh, discussion because that was my next thing that I wanted to talk about, which was, um, you know, any local scene, whether it's Seattle or Boston or L.A. that we've covered before, has its handful of um, local labels that sort of help initiate the, the, the band's into that whole world of actually getting their records pressed if they're not going to be able to do it on their own and, and getting promotion and maybe getting them hooked up with, uh, you know, tours and whatnot. And I think the one that everybody knows is twin tone would be the one that everybody who knows a little bit about the Minneapolis music scene and St. Paul music scene would, would know that one. Um, you mentioned Treehouse, Michelle, are there any other, labels that were key in terms of finding local bands and and getting them getting releases out there or just getting their name out there um well definitely amrap amphetamine reptile did you know cows and um who else was on Am- like a lot of guzzard yeah
Yeah, yeah. Boss Hog, weren't they on there too? A lot of, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. bands. Not helmet. Around here. So they did look, Helmet, yeah, yeah, they did a lot of the noise bands. So that Twin Tone, you know, did did um, Soul Asylum, all the early, their early stuff. And Treehouse had, um, did a lot of like the smaller bands too. I would say those are what stand out to me. In, in terms of the um, the seventies and eighties bands such as um, uh, Suburbs and and Suicide Commandos, uh, what was their label situation? Were they working with uh, local labels, or were they just doing it themselves? Or how was that? How were they getting their music out? Uh, at first, they were doing it themselves. Um, Suicide Commandos signed a blank record at the same time as Terra Ubu as one of their first uh, releases. They were a subsidiary of Mercury, but then they closed, and so those. Uh, Suicide Commandos were dropped, and then they later signed the Twin Tone. And the Suburbs were, uh, I thought they did their, oh, they were signed to Twin Tone uh, first before they went on to, like, Warner and such. Okay. And then, Jamie, when you were um, first starting out, and were there labels that you were sending your demos to in the in the area that were you were trying to get uh, um, you know, your music out to? <laughs> Uh, I mean, interestingly, I, I feel almost like traitorish in this. Uh, we wanted out. <laughs> so we were all of the labels that we were trying to contact were, uh, you know, out in California or in New York or whatever. You know what I mean? Like we 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 saw touring as the way to kind of like further our band and we wanted to hit the road and do all those sorts of things. So I think uh, when I kind of look back at this all, I think everything that we we're thinking about was all by design to leave. So, you know, I remember, um, Mike Park, you know, he has Asian man records and we were trying to get on Asian man records and eventually animal Chan and both the stereo were on fuel by ramen records, which was at the time, uh, located in Gainesville, Florida, which now fuel by ramen records is like, you know, this gigantic thing, part of Atlantic. Now, uh, it's, you know, I, in a weird way, I feel like a lot of what my my connection to Minneapolis is is sort of like uh, t- twisted in that like everything that we were doing was all about trying to spin wheels and get out of town. You know, so right. I don't I don't have a tremendous amount of like you know I mean I know all the all the places and the bands and the clubs and the and the, the record stores that that uh, Michelle and Cindy are talking about are like are just like so close to my heart because I remember like looking at these albums, you know, in my uh, dorm room at, at, in high school or at, you know, at my home, uh, whatever. And being like, I want to, I want to do this. I want to go out and be doing what these guys are doing. Um, but we just went about it a completely, probably an ass backwards way. You know what I mean? But uh, it, whatever it is, it worked, you know, got us out of town. I remember I wanted, I told our booking agent, um, in 98, like, I don't want to see snow all year long. <laughs> you know, just keep me, keep me gone all winter. I'm so, I hated it. You know what I mean? And, and, and we, we did this weird tour where we literally went from like Los Angeles to Jacksonville, Florida, and then back or in, in December, like we just like, just literally just went crisscrossing the country through Texas twice, you know, just so that we couldn't go home. It was like from Thanksgiving to Christmas, and we just st- we just stayed out there, you know. Yeah. Again, I'm not answering your questions, am I? <laughs> no, but that's an interesting um, perspective. <laughs> I I wanted to add something about labels, if I may. Sure. Um, not not to be forgotten is Reflex Records, which 
Terry Katzman did with members of Husker Du as a um, way of releasing Husker Du records and others, such as uh, Rifle Sport and Man's Eyes Action, um, Garage Door later on, and also Spanish Fly, Lori Barbero's label. Um, oh, yeah. And there was also Sestones, Ed Ackerson's label, um, hosting more like mod bands or garage bands. So. And these were all completely like local these weren't subsidiaries mm -hmm. of majors or anything like that this is all like homegrown you know everything's being done you know with a very small operation i'm guessing this isn't like you know you sometimes in the 90s we would hear about these local these indie labels and you'd be like well really they it's a they're getting distributed by capital or they're getting distributed by warney brothers and they're getting money you know and they're not really a indie label there's a, a whole, mm -hmm. you know, thing behind them. But I'm assuming that these are all um, Completely smaller. independent. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. One of the things that Jay and I have discovered in, in doing these Digging Your Scene episodes is that we can talk about all these sort of, like, tangible, like, the bands, the labels, the uh, where they were going to play shows and, and how they were getting the word out. But there's always these, like, intangibles that sort of happen in the scene that, are very unique to the city. Usually it has to do with some sort of unique personalities or scene stirs or just people who are like kind of on the fringe of they're not in a band but and they may may not run a club but they're somehow involved in the scene as sort of a mover or a shaker I guess you'd say for lack of a better term. Are there any names that come to mind and and what they did in terms of being involved in the scene as somehow shaping the the scene in the 80s and 90s um i'll throw it out there to anybody who has a as a um idea or a, or a, a name they want to toss out or um a few that come to mind right away are uh dj kevin cole um who was involved with um helping uh steve mcclellan turn first avenue into a live music venue steve mcclellan was hugely supportive and still is to this day with demo of uh, hosting live music. Chrissy Dunlap was the first, one of the first bookers of uh, 7th Street Entry and uh, recommendations to Steve, uh, early supporter of Loud Fast Rules, uh, and the first person who was uh, interested in, or I mean, on board with, with doing a Prince show at First Avenue. Uh, Maggie McPherson, who became a booker at the Tom Bar, and was one of the first people to start um, supporting uh, artists from across the country uh, to play at the Uptown Bar. Um, Sue McLean, innumerable bookers who really had a passion for live music and bringing it to the people, and uh, DJs such as uh, also Peter Jesperson and um, Mary Lucia, as was early, earlier mentioned. Okay. Anyone else want to uh, throw a name out there? Hmm. I, I don't know if I have like uh, any one person that I could pick as like as you described, but like I will say that um, that Tom and uh, 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 Elizabeth that ran Foxfire Coffee Lounge, um, I thought were really really instrumental, at least for the era that kind of I was around in making Minneapolis like uh, uh, it, the Foxfire Coffee Lounge to me was kind of like a like a an art space cbgb's sort of thing for minneapolis to me and and it was showcasing a lot of music that wasn't 
really big enough to get into Seventh Street entry or First Avenue, um, but nonetheless would still, you know, like still have like 150, 200 people come out. I mean, that would be like an absolute wall-to-wall pack show if 200 people were in there. You know, like the kind where the walls start, you know, they start sweating. So Elizabeth and Tom that ran that place, I would say those two people were like were are people that I'd like to mention for that for this question, I suppose. Okay, Michelle, anyone to add? Yeah, I would say um, Paul Dickinson, who and Laura Brandenburg, who did Speedboat Gallery. For just bringing it, you know, all these bands, you know, all, a lot of the touring bands that that might have not have gotten booked elsewhere. At, like Sin was saying, just all these incredible shows. Did you want to add something, Sin? Um, yes, uh, definitely. Uh, Grant Hart um, and Lori Barbero were booking shows together at Duffy's and uh, Goofy's Upper Deck and basement shows. Uh, Grant was booking shows at the church where he lived, um, those underground shows, and uh, Lori brought a lot of international bands to the Twin Cities uh, that we might not have seen otherwise. Yeah, I agree. Cindy, you see, you like really know your stuff. Every time you give an answer, I'm, I always say, oh, my God, yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, so it, it just got mentioned, and I, we would be remiss if we didn't uh, talk about Prince. And because um, I kind of feel like uh, a lot of people who maybe don't know a lot about Minneapolis, St. Paul, know First Avenue because they watched Purple Rain or uh, they don't know about the the what is it? The um, the healing power of Lake Minnetonka or uh, <laughs> the various other. Oh so wh- how does how do how does Prince factor in in terms of was he a present on the scene throughout the 80s and 90s i know paisley park has like this you know graceland um like uh quality to it in terms of uh being a um you know iconic location after he passed away there were stories about him uh you know riding around town on his bicycle going to record shops and doing these things that you would never expect you know you think of prince you think of this larger than life personality but I'm just curious about, like, you know, stories that you guys heard or or just any in- ideas about his impact on, you know, he stayed very lo- local and, and loyal to that area and uh, where a lot of people might have moved to Los Angeles or, or New York where there are labels and, re- you know, recording studios and whatnot. And he sort of did it his own way. I'm curious. I'll, I'll start with you, Sin, since uh, I know the, the book isn't necessarily... Uh, about him but just in terms of you know he started in the early 80s oh actually late 70s and then um what what sort of impact did he have uh or what sort of um impressions did you get in terms of uh his impact on the minneapolis st paul scene the impression i got from talking uh to various people uh, who were there at the beginning was that um he bridged uh music styles, uh, funk with rock, and suddenly um, when people saw him and his uh, band and dancers, uh, they'd never seen anything like that. It was just mind-blowing. It was revolutionary, and uh, they loved the music, and so they they started going to uh, see his shows all the time. It was a very exciting time. They'd have phone trees to uh, see his shows, and he'd still get sold out. 
it was he was just <clears> such a dynamic, phenomenal performer that all the young punk rockers and indie rockers were going. And um, uh, it's he developed such a, a, a network of um, of uh, followers and was just super uh, motivated and hardworking that um, it just it caught on like fire. It was like wildfire. Chrissy Dunlap uh, was there at the very beginning, as I earlier mentioned, and um, she talks a lot about how it was just unlike anything they'd ever seen before. Right. And, um, I'm asked uh, Jamie and, and Michelle coming up in bands. Um, I know sometimes when you're young, you sort of, react against the um whatever is popular and try to go in a different direction um was was that your feeling i'll I'll start with you jamie with prince you know by the time of the you know late 80s early 90s prince has become a huge star at that point are you listening to prince and thinking oh this is ridiculous and this is over the top or are you drawing inspiration from his sort of the fact, the, the fact that he's forging his own path, and what's your, what's your relationship with uh, with the purple one? <laughs> I like that. I like the way you ended that question. Uh, uh, my relationship with the purple one. No, um, you know, to me at that time, like Prince was, it, it was sort of like a like a sacred cow or something in Minneapolis, and it, it you know, I I would rally behind. The replacements and and Soul Asylum, you know, as those bands would sort of like turn into these juggernauts, and they were our they to me were the, my hometown heroes. You know, Prince Prince might as well have lived on the moon, as far as I was concerned. I mean, like I didn't I I never you know I would hear all the time. Oh, I saw Prince the other day, and I'm like, what? Like no, you know, like who sees Prince? I, I guess he would, you know. Once in a once in a blue moon, he'd show up at First Avenue to see some show, you know, and that would just blow people's mind. He'd just stand there, you know, and watch some band, um, you know. I never had that experience, and you know, in the in the '80s when Purple Rain came out, I was like a Prince fan, you know, along with every other, you know, fourth grader or whatever I was at the time. Uh, but you know, by by the time that I was doing music, Prince was sort of like um, um, it was history almost to me. Uh, and I, I never had like any sort of, you know, significant experiences surrounding him or anything like that, other than like, you know, just like stories people would tell you in town or whatever. Um, but but I, 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 you know, I would go see uh, Soul Asylum as often as I could. I, I remember going to rent my movies at Panorama Video and I would see Dan Murphy, you know, browsing through movies there and I would be like, <gasps> you know freaking out and trying to not, you know, lose my cool in the, the uh, uh, you know, in the, in the action section or whatever I was <laughs> trying to rent, you know, but, um, yeah, you know, I mean, you'd every once in a while, you'd hear some crazy story. He would open up Paisley park for some wild show and every, you know, it, that always seemed like that was everybody, but me would have that sort of thing happen to them. So I just, I, I, I always had my, my eyes pointing the other way, trying to do other things. Gotcha. Michelle, any, Prince anecdotes to add? Yeah, I remember when I was little, like going to a movie and someone asking me whether I whether I liked it or not, and I didn't understand that you, you could not like a movie. I'm like, it's a movie. Like, 
it's great. I didn't know there there could be a negative thing. And to me, that's what Prince is like. How do you? How would you not like Prince? You know, and just that he was from this place, and just being, you know, a young, you know, teenager, you know, thirteen, and listening to Purple Rain, and just all of it being so magic and. It's so amazing and just never outgrowing that, you know, and then on top of all that, there he is, you know, at Dairy Queen and there he is <laughs> at the movies, you know. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I don't know how you would have anything what there would ever be not to like about it, <laughs> you know. You know, I, I'd like to add go, one thing. Oh, go ahead. And they, oh, and they said, you know, like when they said, Lake Minnetonka in the movie, and, and we're all like in Minnetonka at the movie theater, and we're like, yay! <laughs> um, so that's pretty pretty amazing to have just this over the hey. top like hugeness in it to be so close to you, right? Hey, have you uh, have you ladies seen? You, I, I'm hoping everybody here has seen the movie Fargo. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you remember the scene when they're they're driving from Fargo down to the Twin Cities? And I remember I was watching this at the Uptown Theater um, and it was so very clearly they were very clearly on the 35 heading north into Minneapolis. If you were from there, you just know that wasn't that's not the way that you would get to Minneapolis from Fargo. You'd, you'd have to drive around the city and then come up. It, it just didn't make any sense. And they're on their way down. Uh, uh, I remember in the Uptown Theater and Steve Buscemi in the scene, he looks, he's like, hey, look, here we are, Minneapolis. And everybody, it's not a funny scene at all, but everybody in the audience was laughing hysterically because <laughs> you guys are heading north on 35. What are you doing? You know what I mean? And so I, when you said that story about the Tonka, I, I immediately thought of Fargo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think that happens anytime someone gets their their hometown shouted out in a uh in a movie and then also it was not like minnetonka <laughs> oh of course of course it wasn't way to ruin purple rain thank you spoiler alert <laughs> uh so i want to i want to wrap up our our main section here and talk about you know when we've talked to our folks for our Chicago episode and for our, our Boston episode, it wasn't easy, but we were able to sort of focus in on a, on a sound from when we heard all these bands, um, we, or at least a couple sounds. And when we talked to the Chicago folks, we talked about the, the industrial music that came out of Chicago in the eighties and nineties and the, and the, um, and the power pop influenced by cheap trick and the, some of the other, power pop bands from that area and then when we talked to boston there was a lot of um what we called college rock with uh the pixies and dinosaur jr and and throwing and uh, some other throwing some other bands in there in looking at the bands that happened in the 70s into the 80s and into the 90s you know that there was a, a lot of punk bands a lot of i guess you'd say indie rock bands, but I couldn't narrow it down. When I started to add more and more bands, it seemed to become less and less cohesive in terms of a, of a sound in, in your minds, is there a sound for 
Minnesota, or is there a is there anything connecting the various uh, bands that people are aware of, whether it's from the '70s punk bands into the '80s, you know, bands that people know, like we've mentioned, Replacements, Soul Asylum, and then into the '90s, and then and then I looked even into later, there was like. Uh, the 90s and 2000s, like Motion City Soundtrack and Owl City and Tapes and Tapes and some of these other bands. Is there anything connecting all these bands, or is, or is is it just sort of uh, a more wide open sound than uh, some of these other cities? Jamie, since you were most recently in the um, in the thick of it, I'm curious about you know with the stereo was were you guys a part of a scene? Do you, do you think, or was it more open than that? I mean, I've always been proud to say that, uh, or I would be proud to say now that I think Minneapolis actually has a very non-sort of definable sound. I mean, there are so many types of bands that came out of there. You know, if I'm forced to say anything, I would probably say it's the sound of the replacements, because I think you could almost draw a line from any band to them that came from there. There's something about any band from Minneapolis that they could kind of go, all right, you know, because the replacements have intensity and they have, but they also have pop melody and everything in between, you know? But I mean, there are, there are, you know, bands like, uh, like you said, motion city soundtrack, which are like sort of like a, you know, so a very poppy, sugary sort of punk. Um, and then you can go all the way back to like Husker Du, which is just, you know, loud and fast, you know, and which I could then draw a line to like Dillinger 4 or something like that, you know, I mean, and, and it, I mean, we have had every type of music come out of Minneapolis, you know, I mean, the, the Jets, anybody remember the band, the Jets? They're from uh, Minneapolis, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then, you know, it's I remember seeing the Jets at the State Fair just in like some band gazebo that wasn't like a proper show. They were just like playing like the four o'clock set, you know, um, and then like the next year they were like pop superstars, you know, I mean, it's everybody can no matter what kind of music you make, I think you can probably find an audience in Minneapolis. Michelle, would you agree with that being in a band from Minneapolis? But I, I think it's all over the place, you know. Um, I mean, I think there's our little scene, you know, and it's not little, but I think that's a tiny little universe, though, of there's so many different scenes. So I think for what I know and what I've been part of, yeah, there's some common thread running through it, but I think there's probably a lot of things that I don't know about and haven't heard. So um, I don't. So I don't really know. <laughs> uh, Sin, I have I have two questions for you. One is, uh, what do you think about Jamie's comment regarding the replacements? Because I now that he says that, I think that that's a really astute observation of as far as them being sort of a yes, a modern I'm astute. Yes, a modern godfather. <laughs> I'd say for a, a lot of the future, or, or not the future, but the what would happen after that in terms of the noise plus the melody plus the attitude and and all that. And then also, you know, being that you're in the media with uh, KFAI and uh, you have a bit more, um, I guess you'd say, you're doing this research on this book, you have a, a broader view. Um, what is the, what do you think of the Minneapolis scene now? Are there, is it still producing bands that are getting national recognition or is it a different scene now? Let's See, the first question about uh, the replacements, um, I agree with Jamie and uh, 
see the threads going from uh, them to uh, inspiration of younger bands through today. Um, I think Husker Du was uh, equally huge in revolutionizing a sound, uh, not only here, but also in um, scenes such as Seattle. Um, mm-hmm. Ruth Pavitt, uh, founder of Sub Pop Credits, those two bands as basically creating the grunge scene from the people who would become the future grunge bands, seeing those two bands uh, when they were teens. And who's going to revolutionize punk music by uh, things such as including um, melody and um, post-punk elements in with their punk music. And it wasn't just angry uh, loud music, but also introspective and emotional uh, stories. There was so much more to it, and so that uh, shaped future punk across America. Today, uh, the scene is as strong uh, as ever, if not stronger. There's uh, young bands popping up of all genres uh, on a near-weekly basis, and really great bands, uh, youth who are really knowledgeable and respectful of the history that came before them and incorporating an amalgam of uh, genres into their own music. And it's very unique and vibrant right now. Uh, Undefinable, as Jamie noted. Um, And Michelle, uh, you noted it's kind of all over the place. That's what I see when I go to shows. Uh, you don't know what to expect, and it's very fun and very exciting. A lot of bands are becoming uh, nationally recognized, but I'd like to see a lot more of that happen. Uh, um, there are innumerable bands that deserve, deserve more national recognition right now. Okay. I, I think we have covered as much as we can cover in our allotted time. We have. I want to thank all of you guys. You've done... An awesome job, and thank you for sacrificing some of your Sunday night to uh, to chat with us. We need to go around and and plug everybody's stuff again. Sin, you're at Sin Collins. That's C Y N C O L L I N S dot blogspot dot com. Also at K F A I dot orgs. That's Spin with Sin. Um, and of course, you have the complicated fun book, and then. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is available through the Minnesota Historical Society Press as well as, as, well as other locations. And then uh, what, there's another book also, which I'm blanking on. What was the other book that you have authored? <clears throat> West Bank Boogie is on the 1960s uh, Minneapolis blues and folk and jazz scene. Excellent. And is that also through the Minnesota Historical Society? Um, no, you can get that through uh, Triangle Park Creative. Okay. And people can follow you. Okay. And people can follow you on Twitter at Sophia Collins and then find you on Facebook as well. Uh, Mm -hmm. Jamie, Jamie where you can go and you put out a solo record back in 2013. Are you working on a new solo record or what's, what's the current status of recording projects? Uh, we're actually working on a new stereo record. If you can believe that, um, you know, we, we just uh, played uh, in August. We played in Chicago. We just did a couple of reunion shows. And, that you know, we that went fantastic. And we've actually we decided to play some new songs at, at that show. And uh, so which kind of gave it away that we'd been secretly working on, a, on new songs. We have 32 new songs right now. <laughs> I think I think we need six more before we're sort of like ready to kind of start having the. Uh, 
the bloodbath of music and decide what what's going to make the record. But then when we have that, we're going to we're going to try to crank out something and put it out. I don't know how we're going to do it yet, but we, we have a lot of material and we're excited to do it. Are you making one of those like 26 song dream theater albums or are you going to whittle that down <laughs> to like 10 songs? Well, yeah. Well, yes. The idea was to do like a, a proper like 12 to 15 song record. Uh, but that we, a lot of the material is just sort of like out there, you know, like wild, weird stuff. And we're like, well, we'll have to kind of come up with like an album out of this. Um, but then there has been talk of like, well, let's just release all of it. Like, why not? You know what I mean? And just be like, here, this will hold you for another like 10 years, you know? <laughs> um, but we'll, we'll, we don't know yet. We kind of have to see how everything comes together. There's, there's still like, at least like, you know, I'd say a third of the material that's, um, in sort of like a, like a orb form where it's got music and everything, but then there's like mumble mouth vocals, like no real lyrics yet. So once we get everything groomed properly, we'll decide. And, but if you want that, I can, I can put in a word with the guys and we can do the dream theater thing. Uh, yes. You know, okay. <laughs> Octavarium. <laughs> I mean, that's gonna probably, it's going to probably have to be like a multi episode, uh, dig me out podcast, you know, and you, you know, we we could do that. We can make that happen. Just more start, work for you guys. <laughs> start working on the. You need to write some interludes to go between it. And yes. Some right. voiceover and really bring this together. Right. right. Intermission, all that stuff. <laughs> Excellent. And uh, Michelle, I live inside. Memoirs of a Babe in Toyland available at Amazon and of course through the Minnesota Historical Society Press, and we can find it on Facebook too. Thank you once again for coming back and uh yes. joining us thank you um, so fun good i'm glad because i was worried everybody was gonna you know look at this as a homework assignment like oh i gotta remember all these <laughs> things and write things down and so uh that's we good were to probably hear. all googling at the same time <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um i want to remind everybody listening go to patreon.com where you can hear the bonus content we do have uh, the $1 level is still available, and uh, that's patreon.com forward slash dig me out. And if you like what you heard on this episode, please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at iTunes. For Jay, I'm Tim. We are out, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, visit www patreon.com forward slash dig me out and become a monthly subscriber or request a review at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages, as well as our merchandise store at zazzle.com.